We're in Psalm 96 this morning, looking at verses 1 through 3. Doom and gloom. Doom and gloom. Woe is me. How bad can it be? Is there no good news? No reason to rejoice? No reason for thanksgiving and praise? I certainly do not in any way wish to make light of the trouble that exists in some parts of the world. At the same time, Christians of all people, of all people, should not be walking around with their chins on their chest. When our Lord told us <clears throat> these things would take place, and then they do take place, while we shouldn't be cheering, we should be cheered. We should be confident. <clears throat> we are about to enter in three weeks the Advent season. But before we do, I'd like to take us through another season, a Thanksgiving season. <clears throat> there is a consistent and constant call for us to give thanks throughout the pages of Scripture. <clears throat> there are explicit calls to give thanks. There are implicit calls, <clears throat> such as the psalm we look at this morning. It is an implicit call to give thanks to God. Hebrew poetry, as we have said before, often is quite different from English poetry. Often we find that instead of the conclusion being at the end, in Hebrew poetry, often the conclusion comes at the beginning. And here the rest of the psalm gives reason for the conclusion that comes at the beginning of the psalm. <clears throat> Take, for instance, the psalm verses 1 through 3 form the conclusion, telling us what we are to do, while verses 4 through 6 tell us why we are to do it. And as we move through the psalm, it deals not only with what the people are to do, but also what all creation is to do. And it ends with a great blessing in the form of a promise in verse 13, which says, Before the Lord, for he cometh, he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and his people with the truth. This is a blessing both for God's people and God's creation. That's why creation is, is called forth to give praise because it will be able to come away from its groaning and moaning that takes place in our present age. We're going to not cover the psalm in its entirely entirety today, but uh, only verses 1 through 3. If you notice, this psalm has no superscription to it. And a superscription is that uh, when you look under Psalm 96, there's nothing else written before the, the words of the psalm itself. There's no description written nor author listed. Yeah, different from like when you turn back to, say, Psalm 86 
it'll tell us it's a psalm of David, a psalm 87, a psalm of song for the songs of sons of Korah, or in Psalm 88, a song or psalm for the sons of Korah to the chief musician and upon the uh, instruments uh, that they were to sing. But when we come to this particular psalm, there is no superscription given. It doesn't tell us if it's a psalm of David. It doesn't tell us the conditions in which uh, they were. it was written. These superscriptions, of course, are not part of the original, but traditionally they have been there and, and deemed in most cases to be accurate. So we have no superscription here, but by the internal evidence of this song, psalm, we can find that it is truly a psalm of David, and mostly to be found, the wording is found also in First Chronicles chapter 16. And the, so if we look at First Chronicles 16, then we realize that the occasion for writing this psalm would be the return of the Ark of the Covenant from the uh, Philistine captivity where it was lost in battle. So the return of the Ark of the Covenant was a great time of rejoicing for David and for the people. But the return of the Ark of the Covenant also has great symbolism to it because the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God with the people. It is a prefigurement of Christ, if you will. The lid, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And the priest would sprinkle blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. And the mercy seat would be in the holy of holy in the tabernacle between the cherubim, which is also interesting because when Isaiah has his vision of Christ in Isaiah chapter 6, Christ is seated between the cherubim. So this psalm looks to the kingdom of the Messiah. In fact, in the Syriac version of the Old Testament, it on this psalm does have a superscription where it says a psalm of David, a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah and of the calling of the Gentiles that believe in him. So verses one through three, what are we to do? Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen for his wonders among all people. And so we're told then to sing. Sing unto the Lord. And we're to told to sing a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. We sing a, a new song for new mercies. A song well seated or suited for the good news. When we think of Christ, we think of things that are new, a new covenant. Remember, he said he gave us a new commandment that ye love one another. Uh, we don't have that commandment listed among the ten, but as the giver of the commandments, he can. Give that to us. Christ will bring in a, a new heaven and a new earth. 
And it's interesting, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven, what does he say? What does John say? I saw no temple. Why? Well, because the greater than the temple, Christ is there. So every believer, every believer has a new song to sing. The flesh, as Augustine would say, singeth the old song. The renewed heart and spirit singeth a new song. And the word that we should sing has got to be suited for the good news. The word for song here is not psalm like we see so many times in the Old Testament. But the Hebrew word shirah, he's not commanding then in addition to the Psalms, but to sing a song appropriate to the situation. I think for the angels, when they sang of the birth of Christ, when they sang to the shepherds, they were singing a song they had never sung before. They were singing a new song. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. We hear not those words from angels until that particular point in time. And so I guess for them it was a a new song. There are several times that this is commanded in the Old Testament and the New that we are to sing a new song. If we go to Revelation 5 and verse 9, we'll find that here they are singing a, a new song. And they're singing a new song before the throne. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and has redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And then also in Revelation 14 and verse 3, and they sang a new song before the throne. New songs, new mercies. The Lord brought forth the law, that is the law of Moses. It didn't bring any songs. There are no songs about the law of Moses. We don't sing about the law in fact, there, I don't know how many songs there are about the Ten Commandments, but we, we do sing about God's mercy. So the law brought forth no songs. It is really only grace that lifts the heart to sing. A point that we see here as we look at verses 1 and 2. Notice the command to sing. Sing unto the Lord. Sing unto the Lord. Verse 2, sing unto the Lord. That command comes up three times. It is Trinitarian in nature. And so as we see the command to sing, it shows up three times. And so the same wording. So we can say sing unto the Father. Sing unto the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Sing unto the Holy Spirit. We just said 
we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, and giver of life. We are then to sing of salvation. And the moment we start to sing of salvation, it begins a Trinitarian-based song because the Father conceived our salvation. The Son made it happen, and the Spirit applies it to us. Note that the command goes out to all the earth, not just to the land of Israel, but to all the nations. Why? Because of the topic. We see it in verse 2. Show forth his salvation from day to day. The Jews could not sing this of Moses. They could not sing this of Joshua. They might sing of temporal deliverance, but they could not sing of eternal salvation. The world could not sing of Moses, but the world can sing of Christ the Savior. For in John chapter 4 and verse 42, John says of Jesus Christ, he is the Savior of the world. That is the world's only Savior. There is no other Savior. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There is nothing out there that will save man. No matter how many vapid movies that Marvel continues to spin out over and over again with a myriad of people who dressed in all kinds of strange costumes looks more like a gay pride parade than a salvation time for the earth. One after another. Hey, yeah, where'd you, where's your Savior come from? It comes from a comic book. <laughs> Boy, I feel good now. Comic book saviors that save nothing but bring in a lot of money. All the earth is to sing. All the redeemed throughout the earth. And here again, a form of a prophecy pointing to the fact that Jesus would save both Jew and Gentile, making one church, one people, one faith, one Savior. I was told this week in, uh, of a, with, from a man who went on a tour through Jerusalem. And he was expecting that their tour guide would be a local Jew. But they were surprised in their group to find that the, the tour guide was a Palestinian and a Christian. And this tour guide that they had, you could sense, he said, the thrill that he had in talking about his Savior, and how much he added to the tour by being able to add the dimension that the Jew could not add to it, because he knew the reason and the meaning behind the places that they went to. For the, an unconverted Jew, it's just a spot on a tour that you point to and say, this happened there and that happened there. But this man blessed them all, by the way. And he would stop at every point and he would pray 
about the glory of the spot and the thing that took place because Christ had been there and done this thing or the other. So he told us, show forth his salvation from day to day. Did you ever get tired of anything? You may get tired of weary, weary of your job. People might get tired, weary of their family responsibilities. But if you're truly saved, you will never get tired of your salvation. You'll never get tired of your Savior. If it's real and true, you are not going to be like the pig that returns to the wallow or the dog to its vomit. Martin Luther wrote, Christ is now as fresh to me as if he had shed his blood this very hour. It's common that people will question what our existence in heaven is like. Jesus doesn't give us a whole lot of details on that. He gives us a lot on, on what uh, dwelling in hell is like. But some people get a little bit antsy about the constant mention of continuous praise. Sure, there are other things that we'll be doing won't there? Perhaps so. But we will sing praises to our Savior as long as salvation lasts and extends, which is to eternity. And so therefore, an eternal salvation demands eternal praise. Someone asked me one time, do you think there will be golf in heaven? And I said, definitely not. <laughs> and he said, how can you be so sure? How can you say so? I said, because Jesus said there's no more curse. <laughs> and so the command, sing unto the Lord, bless his name, his name speaks of who he is. And if we bless his name, we are doing as what we did in the beginning of the worship. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. As the source of all blessings. When we speak of these things, when we speak of the blessings of God to us, we bless his name. We give him the glory and the honor that is due uh, to his name. That's what it means to bless his name. We have in verse 3, the last command of these three verses. Declare his glory among the nations are among the heathens, his wonders among all people. Well, the first few commands begin with an S. This one begins with a D. Declare. Declare 
his glory. It's an interesting thing that takes place in declaring his glory. Augustine says it's like building. Every time we declare his glory, we build a little more. Restoring more of what the world tears down during our week. We restore it and we restore it even better. Every time we declare his glory, we become better as well. And declare, that word itself has an emphasis to it. It means that what we are saying, we say it with conviction. To declare something is more than just mentioning it. To declare is you're saying, this is the truth. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded. Declare his glory. Declare the wonders. Of course, we would declare the wonders of Christ. Him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. All the fullness of deity dwells in him. John in chapter 1 tells us of, of the, we had beheld the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. He would tell us that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. See, we can't sing of the law because we always fail when it comes to law. We don't sing about failures. The only thing worth singing about is redemption and bringing us out of the failure, bring us out where we're from dead to life, from darkness to light. These are the things that we sing about. Now, you might want to ask, some people sometimes wonder, why are we so often commanded in Scripture to sing unto the Lord, especially in the Psalms, to give praises unto God, to, to talk about His greatness and His glory. Why are we consistently told each so often throughout the Psalms, especially, to do these very things? What's wrong with God? Does He, does he need bolstering through, the, through our words? Does it make Him better and to, and to hear us talk about Him? Well, to put that to rest... God doesn't need weekly adoration times. But you know what? We do. We definitely do. All week long, we dwell in the city of man. And so much serves to cause you to forget about God. And in forgetting about God, you forget about who you are. All around us, so much of what around, around us is artificial. Even, in fact, you might be in a building that's made of cinder blocks. Well, it's not really rock, is it? It's, it's sand and all that's been formed into a mold. We are behind drywall. 
If you cut off the paper, what's behind the paper? Powder. Gypsum. Stuff that's man-made. You watch your television. You looking and you say, oh, well, look at the things that are actually happening out there. And all you're seeing actually are digital reproductions. You're not seeing the real thing on your screen. You're seeing a digital reproduction of that. When you go through your phone and you look at all the pictures on your phone, they are digital reproductions. They're not real. They capture an event and a time that happened, certainly, but they're not real. They're, they're digital reproductions. So much that we see is written in code, and at least that's binary. Even the reality TV shows, the quote reality TV, are scripted. All around us are designs that cause us not to think about God. Food Lion, go in there, IGA, all the other places. Nothing there to make you think about God unless you're really in tune and you're walking with him and you see all this that's on the shelves and you say, these are God's provisions. But otherwise, there's nothing there that says, Look here, here's heavenly ham. <laughs> Everywhere we go, if you go to the malls, it's, it's still the same thing. Every single place that we go to, you go to your doctor's office. It doesn't say the nurses are praying for you. They may be, but there's nothing there that leads us to think. And more times than not, your doctor comes in to see you. He's not going to say, how's your prayer life? Of course, if he does start that question with that, you, you might be a little bit nervous. First words from the doctor, are you prayed up? But think of it. You get in your vehicle. <clears throat> there's nothing about your vehicle. There may be something about the way other people drive that make you call upon the name of God. I think it's working. But it's really hard in this world that we live in to find anything that says and points us to God. That's why our gatherings are so important. For they bring us back to reality. So much of what we spend out there in the world is not real. And so we have to be brought back on a weekly basis and God has to remind us to praise him because that's reality. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Well, did you get a blessing from somewhere else? No, because if there's a blessing, it came from God. And we need to be reminded again over and over and over again because as soon as we leave the building, we forget. And we go back into this world that seems to be so devoid of any giving of glory to God. And so call 
God calls us back. Calls us back because we need to be called. Need to be reminded. Need to be refreshed. Need to be renewed. And as we speak about Christ, perhaps also there are those who need to be regenerated, born again. Again, the only true reality, the only one Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should declare each and every day his great salvation. Let's stand together for prayer.